0: Welcome to Unveiled Faces, a Redeemer Presbyterian Church podcast. Please enjoy our future presentation. Well, for those of you who have gone through driver's training, you likely learned that, about the danger of overcorrection. Overcorrection. Uh, Overcorrection accounts for about 4% of all traffic accidents. Uh, a common example of overcorrection is when a driver notices that he has drifted off to the right side of the road and so he jerks a steering wheel so far to the left that he ends up driving off the left side of the road. Well, overcorrection doesn't only happen when we're driving on the road. It happens in other areas of life as well. A person might react so strongly to something that they want to avoid that they end up going too far in the other direction. And this will often end up in a situation that's just as bad, if not worse, as the situation they were trying to avoid. For example, a man might have grown up under an abusive father. So when he becomes a father, he refuses to discipline his children. Because he's so intent on not treating his children the way his father treated him, he overcorrects. He just lets his children do whatever they want. So while he successfully avoided one set of problems, his overcorrection created a different set of problems. He's not a father who abuses his children, But neither is he a father who lovingly trains and admonishes his children. Well, this morning, I want to call your attention to an overcorrection that happens in the church. Over the past century, uh, the American church has done a pretty decent job of alerting Christians to the error of legalism. This is not to say that legalism doesn't still exist in the church. It does but it's had to do so incognito. This is the obvious form of legalism. This is the false gospel of salvation by works. When I say that the American church has done a pretty decent job of alerting Christians to the air of legalism, I'm talking about this most obvious form of legalism. The mugshot of salvation by works is hanging on the wall in most church foyers and most Christians are quick to spot this form of legalism. But legalism is sneaky. It still shows up in our churches, only it shows up in disguise. And the American church has not done a very good job of detecting legalism when it's wearing its disguise. The fact is, Many local churches have let the disguised form of legalism preach in their pulpits, teach their Bible study, uh, teach in their Bible studies and lead their Sunday school classes. It's not the easily detectable message of salvation by works that's being taught in these churches, but it's still a form of heaping heavy burdens that are hard to bear upon the people's shoulders. It's saying, yes, of course, salvation is by grace but if you really want to receive the affirmation of God, or you really want to receive the affirmation of our little community here, then you'll be following our man-made rules. Of course, they don't say it that way, but that's the essence of disguised legalism. Disguised legalism says, if you really desire to know the true word of God, then you'll read and study from the King James Version of the Bible. Disguised legalism says if you really want to worship the Lord, then you'll go to church twice every Sunday, once in the morning and once again in the evening. Disguised legalism says if you really love the Lord, then you'll begin each day with at least 20 minutes of personal quiet time with Him. Disguised legalism says if you're really committed to holiness, then you won't watch any R-rated movies. Disguised legalism says, if you're really raising your children correctly, then you'll be homeschooling them. Disguised legalism says, if you're really committed to purity, then you'll follow this 101 step courtship model I have here. Disguised legalism says, if you really understand what biblical modesty is, then all the females in your family would be wearing denim jumpers. As I said, many Christians are good at detecting and rejecting the undisguised form of legalism, but the, uh, that is the, uh, the obvious form that claims that salvation is by works. But Not as many Christians are as good at detecting and rejecting legalism when it's wearing its disguise. Disguised legalism takes good things, in many cases, things that are good, but elevates them to positions they shouldn't be in. Takes those good things and makes them the requirements for attaining what they claim to be God's approval or approval from the church or whatever community is, Putting forth this disguised legalism. Is it good to read the new? King, is, is it good to read the King James version of the Bible? Yeah, but that's not the only translation that Christians can read. Uh, you're not sinning, and you're no less spiritual if you read from the ESV. Only the disguised legalist says that every Christian needs to read from the King James version. Is it good to worship twice on Sundays? Yes. Beginning and ending the Lord's day in corporate worship with God's people can be a blessing. And while it's true that God commands us not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, he doesn't require that we do this twice every Sunday. To make this a requirement that's imposed upon people is a disguised form of legalism. It's imposing man-made rules uh, where God has chosen not to make rules. Is it good to spend personal quiet time with God? Absolutely. But it doesn't need to be the first thing you do every morning. There might be good reasons why you choose to have your personal quiet time first thing in the morning, but uh, this can't be imposed as a requirement upon other people, at least not as a standard for righteousness. There's nothing wrong with waiting until noon or evening to spend devotional time with God. And nor does our uh, devotional time need to be private and and personal. A husband and wife might do their devotions together or parents might do their devotions with their children. God does command us to meditate upon his word. So it's not legalism to say that uh, every Christian needs to have regular and routine times of study and devotion. But what legalism does is it takes it beyond what God has prescribed by saying how and when and where each Christian needs to study and meditate upon God's word. And to demand that everybody begin each day with personal quiet time is disguised legalism. Is it good to avoid R-rated movies? Yes. Most R-rated movies contain content that Christians should not be entertaining themselves with. But the reason we should choose not to watch a certain movie is not because the Motion Picture Association of America says so, but because of what God says we should be doing. God sets the standard, not the MPAA. And if we're looking to the MPAA for their rating and their approval or their guidance, then we're substituting God's standard with man's standard by letting a secular organization with an anti-biblical worldview tell us which movies we should be watching. That's disguised legalism. And let me remind you that there are some G-rated and PG-rated films that are more harmful to Christians than some R-rated films are. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, then please bring that up as a question during our questions and comments time after the service is over. Is it good to homeschool your children? For some families it is. It's one of the ways that families bring up their children in the training and admonition of the Lord. But homeschooling is not the only way to provide children with a Christian education. It's a disguised form of legalism to heap the heavy burden of homeschooling onto all Christian parents' shoulders. And it's the disguised form of legalism to think that you are more holy than someone else because you homeschool your children and they send theirs to a Christian day school. Is it good for for females to wear denim jumpers. Well, I think jumpers have a place in this world, but what I hope you can see is that to insist on jumpers uh, as the best or the only way to dress modesty, modestly is disguised legalism. God does care about how we dress. He cares about how we think about our bodies. He cares about how we display our bodies and he cares about how the display of our bodies affects other people. So we need to incorporate modesty in our choice of clothing. But God doesn't require women to wear denim jumpers. Making jumpers the standard of morality is disguised legalism. And if it's not a jumper, you can substitute something else in there. And the point I want you to see in all of these examples, is that a subtle form of legalism exists when man establishes standards and requirements that God has not specified in his word. It's disguised legalism when people say, you need to do this or that to receive God's approval or the church's approval or the approval of whatever tribe or community someone happens to belong to, when in fact, God never established that as his standard. Now, sometimes when people begin to see behind the disguise and realize that subtle forms of legalism have been operating in in their own lives, they overcorrect. For example, in recent years, God has brought to light some of the disguised forms of legalism that have been ha- had made large inroads into the homeschool community. In a couple of cases, God exposed the sins of some prominent men and brought their ministries to a grinding halt. And this caused many homeschoolers who had been following these men to see the disguised legalism that these men had been teaching. And having their eyes open to this truth, some homeschoolers overcorrected to this situation and turning away from legalism they jerked the steering wheel so far and so aggressively in the other direction that they crashed into the ditch of hypergrace on the other side of the road of legalism what is hypergrace hypergrace is a subtle but serious theological error i say it's subtle because it sounds a lot like the truth at least when you first hear it For example, hyper-grace affirms that salvation is entirely by grace and not of works. And hyper-grace affirms that Jesus uh, Jesus lived the perfect life of obedience, of righteous obedience that was well-pleasing to the Lord. And hyper-grace affirms that Christ's righteousness is imputed to believers, and there's nothing we can do to improve upon what Jesus has already done. All of this is true, right? Every bit of that is true it's all spelled out very clearly in the scriptures for us as the truth of God. But then hyper-grace goes on to make some very dangerous and highly disturbing applications of these truths. In a nutshell, they conclude that because God does all these things for us by his grace, then personal repentance, personal obedience, and personal holiness have no place in a Christian's life. Hypergrace says that we must not concern ourselves about performing good works. That we have everything we need in the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. I said hypergrace does affirm that we are saved by grace and not of works. And that's exactly what Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9 says so clearly. Paul says, didn't want anybody to miss this point. And so in these two verses, he stated this point four times, twice in a positive sense and twice in a negative sense. For you have been saved by grace through faith. That's stating it in a positive sense. And not of yourselves. That's stating it in a negative sense. It is a gift of God. That's stating it in a positive sense not of works, lest anyone should boast. That's stating the truth in the negative sense. And so we can, we can agree with the hyper-grace pundits on the point that salvation is entirely of grace and not of works. And we can agree with their declaration that believers are imputed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Where hyper-grace gets themselves into serious error, however, is in their failure to make some necessary theological distinctions, such as the biblical distinction between justification and sanctification. Justification is God's legal declaration that a sinner has been made just by the atoning work of Jesus and the imputation of, of his righteousness. So we, have no, we, we really have no disagreement uh, with hypergrace on that point our disagreement has to do with sanctification. Biblically speaking, sanctification is the ongoing process where God works through the power of the Holy Spirit to make Christians more holy. It's what Romans 8, 29 is describing when it says that God has predestined us to be conformed to the image of His Son. That conforming to the image of Jesus Christ is our sanctification, making us more like Christ. And we need to make a distinction between justification and sanctification because the Bible makes this distinction. The distinction is between a Christian's position in Christ and practice in Christ. Justification is God's legal pronouncement that the sinner is righteous. That's our position in Christ. We are forensically declared righteous, but in our daily practice, we are not righteous. So long as we are in these earthly mortal bodies, we are going to continue to sin. Hence the truth of First 1 John 1:8. 1, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Hypergrace. Does not make the distinction between justification and sanctification, which is just another way of saying they don't make the distinction between the Christian's position in Christ and practice in Christ. Instead, hyper grace tries to blend it all together so that the entire Christian experience is treated according to what the Bible says about justification. And this leads to some very serious errors. For example, because hyper-grace places the entire Christian experience under the umbrella of justification, they conclude that good works are not necessary in the Christian's life. Why not? Well, because we're saved by grace, not of works. So works are unnecessary. And if you disagree uh, with this by saying that the Christian does have a responsibility to walk in good works, you'll be called a legalist they'll say that you're trying to earn your salvation by your good works. Do you see how that you see how that happens? You see how you see what's going on there? Uh, there's some seriously faulty logic going on in the hypergrace camp. And I want to make sure that you understand this point, uh, this faulty logic because it's the same faulty logic that runs throughout the hypergrace theology. It, it, it runs across the board in all the application of, of biblical truth is in, in many ways misapplying what the Bible says is true in ways that conform to this faulty logic. So let me repeat those couple steps, logical steps here, just to make sure that um, everybody gets it. Because hypergrace takes the entire Christian life, all of our Christian, all of the Christian experience and puts it under the umbrella of justification They say that good works are not needed in the Christian life because we're saved by grace, not of works. And so works are unnecessary. And if you disagree with this, then you are a legalist. You're trying to earn your salvation by your good works. Because everything in this theology, hyper-grace theology, applies to justification and this faulty logic continues to be applied and as it continues to be applied it spirals down and down and down into deeper and deeper and more serious errors because the entire Christian experience is being treated under the umbrella of justification hyper grace says that Christians cannot be held accountable for their sin Christians cannot be held accountable for for their sin why not? Well, oh, because God has already declared Christians to be righteous. And if God said that a Christian is righteous, then who are you to say otherwise? And Hyper Grace goes on to say that the only time a Christian needs to repent is that one time he does it at his conversion. Once he's been saved, once he's received the grace of God, he never needs to repent again. Why not? Well, because he can't be charged with sin. We've already we've already established that. God declared that he's righteous, and so sin can no longer be charged against him, hence no need to repent. Let me share a personal experience I had with somebody who had come under the influence of hyper-grace theology. This man was a professing Christian and he was going on overnight trips with his girlfriend. And they were, who was also a a professing Christian. And when they would go on these overnight trips, uh, they would stay in the same hotel room. And when I expressed my concern about this, I was told that they couldn't be charged with sin because it was impossible for them to sin. And when I asked how it was impossible for them to sin, um, I was given three scripture passages uh, to prove this point. The first scripture was Romans 6.14, which says that Christians are not under the law, but under grace. And I was told that this means that the moral law of God has no authority over the Christian. The second scripture was Romans 4.15, which says that where there is no law, there is no transgression. Since the moral law has no authority over the Christian, there's nothing by which transgressions can be charged against the Christian. And the third scripture was Romans 8, 1, which says that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So I was told, you can't condemn us because we're in Christ. Do you see the faulty logic at work here? It's the same faulty logic I explained earlier. When the entire Christian experience is placed under the umbrella of justification, sanctification becomes part of justification, which means the distinction between the Christian's position in Christ and practice in Christ is erased. The whole practice part is swept under the rug and all that's acknowledged is the position part. And because God says a Christian is positionally righteous in Christ, hyper-grace applies this declaration to every aspect of the Christian life, which means the moral law of God is discarded, Personal accountability for sin is discarded. The need for personal repentance is discarded. And the hyper-grace person begins to consider himself incapable of sinning because God has declared him to be righteous in Christ. And if you disagree with any of this, then you know what's going to happen. You're going to be called a legalist. You'll be called a legalist because you're trying to apply the law of God to, uh, to, to um, the way a person walks through life. And you'll be called a legalist because you're saying that there are certain behaviors that are sinful. And you'll be called a legalist because you're calling another person to repent of those sins. What we really need to be concerned about, however, is not what hyper-grace says about these things. or not even being called a name such as legalist. What we need to be concerned about is what God has to say about these things. In this regard, let me begin by sharing two passages uh, that speak warnings of destruction upon people who believe and teach the hypergrace error. Jude writes about people in the first century who were teaching something very similar to hypergrace. He says in verse 4 that certain people have crept into the church unnoticed, and they pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality. That's a quote. And that's an excellent description of what people are doing with hyper-grace. They pervert the grace of God into a license for immorality. Isn't that what the boyfriend and girlfriend were doing? Weren't they perverting the grace of God into a license for immorality when they dismissed the sinfulness of their immorality by claiming God's grace had freed them from all moral accountability to his law? And the second passage is from 2 Peter 3. In verse 15, Peter admits that some of the things the Apostle Paul has written in his epistles are hard to understand. And I think many of us can relate with this statement, right? Uh, When we read these challenging passages in Paul's epistles, we're not always sure that we uh, really understand them or what, what to make of them. And if we're going to understand these passages correctly, then we need to do some studying. We need to read them over several times very carefully. We need to compare Scripture with Scripture. And we need maybe to consult with somebody who has greater a greater level of biblical knowledge than we do so that that person can teach us what these difficult passages mean. Well, 2 Peter 3.16, the very next verse, says... That there are untaught and unstable people who twist these difficult passages to their own destruction, just as they do also the rest of the scriptures. So, so Peter's identifying these scripture twisting pseudo Christians who have crept into the church unnoticed, and they twist the scriptures, including these difficult passages, uh, in ways that are harmful for themselves. Destructive for themselves, but then Peter goes on, in verse seventeen, to add a caution to his readers. You, therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the errors of the wicked. And the reason I'm preaching against about legalism and hyper grace today is because these errors are prominent in our culture today. These errors are prominent in the American church. Untaught and unstable people are twisting the scriptures to their own destruction. But it's not merely their own destruction that I'm concerned about. I'm also concerned that you, dear friends, might be uh, deceived by these errors and fall from your own steadfastness. I'm concerned about this for you because Peter was concerned about this for the, the Christians that he was writing to and ministering to. It's not unthinkable, therefore, that somebody from this congregation would be led astray with the error of the wicked. It's not unthinkable that somebody would come to the realization that some subtle forms of legalism have crept into their life, and so they overcorrect and end up plunging themselves into the ditch of hypergrace. It's not unthinkable. This happens. It happens, brothers and sisters. You probably know people that this has happened to. You probably know people who used to take pride in their modest denim jumpers and who used to boast that they don't watch any R-rated movies and who used to look down on other parents who did not homeschool their children And who thought that they knew all the rules and proper techniques that would make a courtship flourish into a beautiful marriage. And when they eventually recognized the ugliness of this disguised legalism, they overcorrected. They overcorrected into the ditch of hyper grace. And you look at their social media pages now and you wonder whether it's really the same person you knew back then. Everything has changed. The pendulum has swung to the other side. Their language is rough. Many of their new friends are rough. There doesn't appear to be any effort to filter what they consume uh, through media. They've thrown courtship out the window and embraced the culture's model of dating. The denim jumper has been exchanged for the kind of clothing that only prostitutes wore a generation ago. And they're quick to insist that everybody who has not adopted their newfound hyper-grace doctrines are legalists. My appeal to you, dear friends, is that if you discover some disguised forms of legalism in your life, don't overcorrect. Don't jerk the steering wheel so far to the other side that you drive into the ditch of hyper-grace. Rather, recognize what the real problem is. The real problem is that you've raised good things to a level that God never intended for them to be raised to. But the good things are still good things. They just need to be put in their proper place. So don't throw the good things out while you're throwing out the bathwater of legalism. Listen again to the, to Peter's warning in 2 Peter 3.17. You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, right, you, you know this before it happens, Since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall fall from your own steadfastness, being led astray by the error of the wicked. Our sermon texts put all of this in their proper place. As we've already seen, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 makes it clear that our salvation is by grace through faith and not of works. But if we keep reading the next verse... Verse 10 tells us that there is a place for good works in our lives. It says, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And this is describing our sanctification. We are God's workmanship, we're told. This means that God is working in us. To what end? To perform good works. God has regenerated us in Christ Jesus so that we will walk in the good works He has prepared for us, and in doing so, we bring glory to God. Matthew 5.16 says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. What this and many other passages of Scripture are teaching us is that when we walk in the good works that God has prepared for us, This demonstrates that we've been saved by grace through faith. In other words, when we do Ephesians 2.10, it demonstrates Ephesians 2.8 and 9. Our sanctification demonstrates our justification. Our sanctification demonstrates our justification. And this is an important point because... When God justifies a sinner, he doesn't give that person a certificate of holiness that can be framed and hung on a wall for everybody to see that he's justified. Rather, the way people see that a person is justified is by their sanctification. As the Holy Spirit transforms our character so that we grow in holiness and obedience, this gives increasingly convincing testimony to our justification. And the converse is true as well. When a professing Christian does not grow in personal holiness and obedience, this increasingly calls into question the validity of their claim to be justified. And this is why James wrote about the faith that's dead. He wrote that the person who claims to have faith but doesn't have any good works flowing out of that faith has a dead faith that cannot save him from his sins. James 2.14 What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? This is a rhetorical question. The answer is no. That faith cannot save him because it's a dead faith. We cannot see another person's justification, but we can see their sanctification. Nor can we see our own justification but we can see our own sanctification. So if you want to know whether you've been justified, look at your sanctification because sanctification demonstrates justification. Or to put it in the words of Ephesians 2.10, when you walk in the good works that God has prepared for you to walk in, you demonstrate that you are His workmanship. When you walk in the good works that God has prepared for you to walk in, you demonstrate through your outward life, through your walking in those good works, you demonstrate that you are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus, justified, declared righteous. Now, knowing that Jude and Peter have warned us that certain people twist the scriptures in destructive ways, we have to ask ourselves how the hyper-grace people twist Ephesians 2.10. They've obviously read this passage, this verse, because so much of their rhetoric rests on Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. So how do they still contend that good works have no place in the Christian's life when verse 10 explicitly states that God has prepared good works for the Christian to walk in? Well, they equivocate. They redefine what good works are. They say, Since a Christian is declared righteous by God, everything he does after his conversion is counted as good works. And this makes sense in the hyper-grace paradigm because they don't believe that they can actually sin once they become a Christian. Having dismissed the moral law of God, they don't believe that sin can be accounted to them. And so they explain Ephesians 2.10, by merely stating that the good works referenced here is anything that they do after having received the grace of god and this would include sharing a hotel room with with your boyfriend or girlfriend hyper grace says that 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 hotel room situation is just part of the good works that god has prepared for them to walk in but as jude wrote that is abusing the grace of god By turning it into a license to sin. And when we look at our secondary text from John 6, 2 John 6, uh, we see very clearly how we are to understand what the good works are that God has prepared for us to walk in. Uh, 2 John 6, this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. That we walk according to his commandments. It's God's commandments, brothers and sisters, that define what good works are. If you are walking contrary to the moral law of God, then you are not walking in good works. Rather, you are walking in sin. But if you walk according to his commandments, then you're walking in the good, uh, the good works, which he has prepared for you to walk in. And this is not one of those difficult things to understand. There are some difficult concepts in the Bible, as Peter acknowledged, but this is not one of them. God's moral law, God's moral commandments, are what distinguish sin from good works. And anyone who twists the scriptures to say otherwise is doing so to their own destruction. Don't fall into the scripture-twisting ditch, dear friends. It's not legalism to look to God's commandments for direction on how you should walk. Nor is it legalism to help a brother or sister in Christ see that um, that acknowledge their sin, see that they're not walking according to God's commandments, and then point by pointing them to the moral law of God. That's not legalism either. That's one of the ways the moral law of God functions in our lives. It's designed to function in our life. And it's The only standard that we should be using to measure our sanctification. If we're looking to our sanctification to demonstrate our justification, then we need to assess our sanctification in the light of God's commandments. That's how we will know if we are walking according to the will of God. I conclude with Psalm 119, verses 17 through 24. Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may see wondrous things from your law. I am a stranger in the earth. Do not hide your commandments from me. My soul breaks with longing for your judgments at all time. Rebu- you rebuke the proud, the cursed, who stray from your commandments. Remove from me reproach and contempt for I have kept your testimonies. Princes also sit and speak against me, but your servant meditates on your statutes. Your testimonies also are my delight and my counselors. Brothers and sisters, may this be the true and genuine conviction of each one of our hearts. To God be the glory. Amen. This has been a presentation of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. For more resources and information, please stop by our website at visitredeemer.org. All material here within, unless otherwise noted, copyright Redeemer Presbyterian Church, Elk Grove, California. Music furnished by Nathan Clark George, available at nathanclarkgeorge.com.